This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson's in London. We're just having a little bit of a technical difficulty right now, but he is here and he will be with us in just a moment. Um, so we're wrapping up really for the end of the year and you can really see that reflected uh, in the overall stock market. Volumes light, not as bad as you may think, but volumes light. Uh, bonds very much uh, on offer pretty much anywhere, particularly over in the UK. You see some pretty heavy pressure uh, yields on the upside by about 12 basis points. Yes, part of it is the global uh, selling off of bonds. The other part of it is definitely going to be uh, BOE sort of selling some gilts into the market. So you're seeing that. Um, European stocks, Euro stocks 50 closing up about two tenths of 1%, uh, FTSE 100 up by about four tenths of 1%. The currency market relatively mixed. Uh, the dollar trading a bit heavy here. Um, some of the recovery currencies like Canadian dollar, Australian dollar doing particularly well today. Um, a couple breaking news things that happened. The big one is what happened in EU when it comes to the gas price cap. It's official, coming in at 180 euros per megawatt hour. Um, there are a lot of technicalities when it comes to the European price cap. Um, for example, it has to stay above that level for three days. The difference in price between uh, Europe, the TTF contract, the Netherlands contract, and the price that we're seeing over in Asia needs to be a certain number in order to trigger this cap. And then apparently contracts on the exchange will stop being traded. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, and I'm a commodities nerd, I don't 100% understand um, how this is going to work and how it's going to affect the market. And if you're a trader, like a Trafigura or a Vidal or a, a Gunbor or a Glencore, how does it work? You just stop trading a contract? How do you hedge? Do you take that somewhere else? Do you basically still have a naked short uh, for the EU? And apparently, it's supposed to really uh, reflect a distortion within the markets. Is the market still distorted or has it reset? I don't know. There are lots of questions to go through. So we're going to take you through that uh, through the next hour as well. Plus, get a lot of look aheads for 2023. Plus, talk about China. The reporting we've seen on the ground in terms of the COVID cases are quite striking. So we're going to get a read through um, on that. But first, it's the UK economy. It's the strikes. Uh, the nurses' strike, I believe, starts today. Guys, though, here, he didn't get shut out from the rail strike. But nevertheless, strikes sort of ballooning over the next few weeks, and it doesn't seem to be a good end anytime soon. No. Guy, you with me? I, I'm with you. I, see, for a moment, I went on strike. You, All you, the technology did, went on strike. I think the technology did. You were there. I, I was here. I have, been, I have been trying to figure out what the technology is doing to us. It has gone on strike. It appears yes. to have accepted the deal that we've offered. Very nice. And is now back to work. So I did an amazing job recapping all the stories. I heard so, it I, because basically there's this massive speaker outside that was blaring excellent. Alex Steele at super high volume. This is like basically the best dream for him. This is like me talking loudly and longly. This is great. This is great. So yeah. you take it now. Strikes. Longly. You just you just made a word up again. I did. I do that. You'd miss um, it if I wasn't here. Yeah, this is true. This is <laughs> this is uh, Reeve Lamberg is in the studio as well. Much bemused. By all of this charging around and uh, and the look of kind of serious concern on my face, um, Reed. Now that we've now that we've established kind of that the technology is going to behave, let, let's talk about what is happening with the with the workers that that maybe are, are still maybe maybe not 
I, I, I jest here, of course. Do, is it possible to calculate the impact that these strikes are having? Not really. It's very difficult to calculate. And, the, you know, the, the consultancies that would take a swing at it in the past, like the Center for European, I forget what they're called, Doug McWilliams outfit, they're not taking a swing at it this time because it is difficult to calculate. Like, for example, the strikes will reduce the number of people coming into London to go shopping, but they may go shopping where they live. Uh, so it may move activity or just around go online. in the economy. Just go online, presumably. Yeah, exactly. There will be but, a little but bit But you more can't online. get your deliveries because the rail workers, uh, sorry, the, the postal workers right. are on strike as well. Yeah, and also there's other things happening. Like uh, one of the things we saw in October's GDP release is a big surge in health activity because they kicked into place the COVID vac- vaccine campaign for the autumn. And that had an upward effect on health spending. So, you know, in aggregate, it's very difficult to tell who's, how the economy as a whole is hurt. But you can tell that there's certain sectors like retail, like hospitality, that are going to be hurt very badly. So where's the government in all of this? Like, are they, like, are they involved? Like, are they engaged? Are they bringing stuff to the table? Like, what's going on there? Well, the government is standing behind its independent, supposedly independent pay review bodies, which it sort of sets the mandate for them. And the mandate it's setting is, don't do anything inflationary. So the pay rip bodies come back and say, well, a non-inflationary pay review would be this. And as a result, you have a lot of angry workers. And it's sort of at a stalemate right now. You've got the workers on strike. You've got the government digging in, making angry comments against the workers and people who criticize the government. And there's sort of no end in sight to this. If this, let's just talk, just kind of theoretically, the balance. There is a huge loss of productivity in the economy right now, which, which in theory is, is also inflationary. How, how, do you, how do you balance this all out? Yes, you, potentially, you have the potential here for higher wages, but also the, the economy is significantly less efficient. Therefore, in theory, that should also be a, be a factor as well. Are we kind of damned if we do and damned if we don't on this front when it comes to the inflation story that that, that is increasingly becoming embedded in the UK economy? Well, there's it, yes and no. There's It's striking the number of voices in the economic community that are saying that the government has a very weak hand, yeah. that it really should cave in a bit, give way. And especially on people like nurses who have faced real terms pay cuts for years and years and years, it's hard to see how you can keep cutting them and expect them to turn up to work every day. So, you know, to me, either they give way a bit on pay or they have a problem with attracting people into the public services and you have people angry that mm-hmm. hospitals, yeah. rail doesn't work in this country. So is it all about pay or are there, are there other things going on there? And that do we read this as a wage price spiral beginning or is it about other stuff? It's mostly about pay. Now, the rail workers have some concerns about terms of working as well and protection of jobs. Uh, but it's largely about pay, and it's largely because wages are falling so far behind inflation that people are feeling a real terms pay cut. You know, the price of everything is going up, especially rents. The price of rent is going up practically everywhere in the country, but wages are not, and that really hurts. How inflationary would a, would a wage increase or, or sort of not at inflation but close to inflation actually be 
Well, inflation is running over 10% right now. Uh, and some people, like the nurses, are asking for 19%. So, you know... That's it, a lot. It, it depends. It's a lot, but given how they've suffered in the past years, it may not be so much. And, of course, they're on pretty low wages to begin with. Nurses are not paid a fortune. Um, so it's, it's mm -hmm. really hard to say how it all aggregates out. And there, there is a debate in the economic community about how much of wage increase for these workers or those would, would add to inflation. Um, quickly before we go, do we know what the economic impact is going to be from all this? In a word, no, just because it's very difficult to aggregate it all out. There will be sectors that are really hard hit. Hospitality, retail are going to really feel it. But, you know, does it change very much for consultants and bankers who are made to work from home for another day? I don't think so. Ray, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, Bloomberg's Reed Lamberg, on what is happening with these strikes and the impact that they are having on the economy. Uh, up next, we're going to hear from uh, Mark Hayfley. He is the uh, CIO of UBS Global Wealth Management, um, running billions and billions of, uh, of assets under management. We'll get his take on what is happening right now and how we should think about our portfolios going into next year. That conversation coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. So the big question now, as always, at the end of the year is how should you be investing your money next year? And the investment community is rather split. You've got those that would suggest that you should batten down the hatches, prepare for worse to come. I'm thinking of you, yes, Mike Wilson uh, over at Morgan Stanley. But there are others that say that now is the time to start thinking about how you should be taking risk, um, putting more money to work in the market. Uh, and here we're talking about KKR's Henry McVeigh, one of the legends of the uh, investment community. He believes that with inflation starting to roll over, uh, the recession fears uh, are becoming a little less onerous. And as a result of which, you should maybe be taking uh, a little bit more risk in your portfolio for next year. How does UBS Global Wealth stack up in all of this? Well, we earlier spoke to its chief investment officer, Mark Hayflin. Uh I think we're going to wait a little bit and look for the inflection points maybe a little bit uh, later in the year. I think beginning of the year, we worry about what is going to happen to corporate margins and therefore corporate profits as we start to see some of this uh, peak start to bleed through into the numbers. So how are you thinking about migrating out of this year into next year? How are you going to position for that, Mark? Well, how am I thinking about it? I'm thinking it can't come soon enough. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I think actually some of the, some of the themes that, we, that have worked very well for us this year are themes we're going to continue into the new year. And that's things like value over growth, and looking for yield, uh, both from higher grade bonds, but also in stocks that have uh, strong fundamentals and a good dividend. And then, uh, and Henry McVeigh, who you mentioned at the top of the hour, will like this. We also like alternatives, including private equity, where we do agree with him is that it should be some good vintages for private equity coming up now, because typically, after you've had a public market sell-off of this level, the new vintages for private equity are relatively strong. 
Um, Mark, stay with private credit for a moment. Um, Arusha Sharma had like a scathing critique of private credit in the FT in an op-ed. Um, basically just talking about, hey, private credit have never been tested in a long downturn. A short one, you can kind of look through it because you're having long-term returns. But if we get something a little stickier and longer, it's going to be really brutal. What are the chances of something like that happening? Like, how do you think about that? Well, I, th I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's true that, uh, it, it, frankly, it, it, if we have a prolonged downturn now with the levels of debt and, th and uh, the current geopolitical situation, I wouldn't, I'm not really sure anything is tested. Hmm. But I think that, you know, on the private credit side, the, uh, it depends on the firms you work with and the deals that they've written. And also, there's a big difference between looking backward at you know people who've already invested and lost money either on the public or the private side and the people who are putting money to work today to uh in new vintages where that money hasn't been invested yet and i think that's the that's the key differentiation because if people are investing today on what they read about previous vintages that's that's a disconnect that we want to highlight that was Mark Hefele. He's CIO over at UBS. We also went on to talk about sort of what the consensus view, what the pain trade is going to be. Guy, what I'm really interested in is if everyone's prepping for a recession and everyone kind of knows the first half's going to be bad, second half may be better. Well, if we all know that and we all invest in that way, aren't we just all in the same trade? And if something doesn't swing that way, are we all running for the exits? Yeah, how bad is the recession going to be, I think, is the first question that I don't think anybody's really figured out yet. People have got assessments, but whether or not they are going to be accurate, I think we don't know yet. The other thing as well is that, yes, we may be heading into a recession, but is what we've priced thus far the pricing for that recession? Mm -hmm. I, have we priced, for instance, a change in the cost of money so far, but not priced the recession, i.e. the earnings hit? That is going to kind of flow from that. We've changed some metrics in terms of valuations, but we haven't changed all of them. Yeah, but I also wonder too. It, what happens if the recession gets pushed out? So we're all looking. Oh, how long is it going to be? Yeah. What's it going to look like? But what if it doesn't come? I mean, what if China growth uh, pushes stuff out a little bit longer, and then the recession is it, you wait it out. Maybe it's third quarter. Maybe it's fourth quarter. That's going to disrupt a lot and, of portfolio And rates stay as higher well. as well. And exactly. rates stay higher during that whole process. Exactly. And maybe bond correlations don't change as much as people. I think there's a lot of unsort of things to figure out next year. Lots of things. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. The ultimate impact of this measure is very difficult to be understood because there are so many safeguards in there that we shall see if and how these will be activated mm -hmm. and if activated for how long it can remain activated before countries uh, calls it off in order not to compromise security supply. Simone Tagli-Pietra joining us from Bruegel uh, moments after the EU announced a deal had been done to cap the price of natural gas. Uh, that price is now €180 Euros per megawatt hour. We have seen months uh, of political toing and froing uh, as to how and when the EU should intervene in the gas market. The idea here is to protect consumers, protect economies, protect businesses uh, from huge swings in gas prices. But we don't know yet whether or not this is going to work and what impact 
this is actually going to have. To try and answer that question, we go as ever to Bloomberg's Rachel Morrison uh, to try and figure out what is going on here. Rachel, this is a much lower number than was uh, originally proposed by the European Commission, which was sort of circa 275. Uh, We're now at 180. One impact is a gas cap, gas price cap, actually going to have on controlling prices within the EU? Well, yes, as you say, this proposal is much lower than what was previously being discussed. And it's significant because one of the main countries blocking this, Germany, has now agreed to that level. And and for countries that didn't want this price cap, it is quite low. However, there's an element that's also linked to um, LNG prices. And that is what we are still trying to figure out as well. And, the, and traders, even though the market is now closed, are trying to figure out is how that interaction will work because you need to have both triggered in order for the cap to kick in. So that's sort of baked in to help make sure that Europe can continue to attract supplies of LNG because that was one of the big worries that having a cap would mean that if prices were higher in Asia, we wouldn't get any more supply. So we're just trying to figure out at the moment, everybody is, how those two elements will interact and what they'll mean for how likely it is to be triggered. Because you could have the cap triggered for three days, but if the difference between that and, say, Asian LNG doesn't fit into the right spread, then all of a sudden then it, it wouldn't kick in. Am I kind of understanding that correctly? Yes, that's right. It has to have both elements. And what we've um, understood from the press conference, which sort of just finished only a few minutes ago, is that the EU is going to undergo an impact assessment on this and can withdraw the whole measure if ESMA and other regulatory bodies find that there's going to be adverse impacts from having this. So in some ways that may temper any excitement or kind of, you know, worries about having this price cap because, as always with Europe, that sort of embedded this get out if we need to clause, um, which may, we'll see tomorrow, sort of temper some of the reaction to this, that it can be withdrawn if it turns out to be a bad idea. Well, let's let's talk about how it could be a bad idea. (laughs) And that is concerned that this is a, a market that is functioning to deliver gas to where it is needed most and those that are prepared to pay the most for it. And as you say, the concern is that you, you may end up in a situation where the market doesn't work, deliveries aren't, aren't therefore made because others are prepared to pay a higher price, but also that utilities and traders basically, because of the, because of the, the, the potential for rapid changes in contract prices, will have to put up greater amounts of margin, uh, collateral effectively, uh, to, to, to be able to take the positions on, uh, and as a result of which will sigh away from the market. Like, do, we, do we understand? Uh, this, these markets get very nuanced very quickly. Has somebody actually kind of back-tested run models on what would have happened were this to have been impl- applied over the summer, I, whether or not the market would have been able to function? I think not yet. I think, you know, this detail has only emerged today, so it's probably too soon to have that kind of analysis. And, in fact, I think that's what that clause, you know, that they can withdraw the proposal is for. So if they do run the impact assessment and, as you mentioned, it's affect liquidity and the recommendation is look don't do this they can still get out of it however it is we can say that you know the price did go above that level and that perhaps reflected what the market thought the price of gas would be if there was a sudden shut off 
in, in all the supplies from Russia. So you sort of dampen that and they don't know what the impact of that scarcity signal will be. And so a year, that was the most surprising element for me, that it's quite a long time and they don't know what the impact of having this price cap will be for a whole year on the market. There could be all kinds of things that go wrong, industry, contracts, you know, things that we haven't thought of yet. So let's think about those things. How are one-month future contracts, TTF on the ICE, how are they normally used? They are used to benchmark contracts. So if you are a big buyer of gas, you need to, you know, you don't usually go for the day ahead price. Sometimes you have to, to balance your position, but usually you will be pegged to the benchmark, in this case, the month ahead. So that will be what your energy bill as such is tracking in order to, you know, a a big consumer, what you pay for gas and how you hedge will be in that um, month ahead market. Okay, so that's that's kind of how, how it's meant to function. We spoke to Ed Morse a little bit earlier on, City's chief uh, commodities um, head of commodities, and he was basically saying that the, the TTF contract, which is the Dutch contract, which is normally the kind of which has increasingly become the kind of global benchmark for natural gas on the water uh, and around the world, no longer valid now. I, I, is this going to be? Has this got the potential to sort of systemically upend this industry and and how it globally prices the cost of of gas? international player, then that is, you know, a sort of shell or a big company that has operations around the world, then that is going to be something you're going to look at. You're going to say, okay, what do we need to benchmark against? If you are just a European focus, you know, in one region in Germany, you may not be comfortable using LNG. You know, a lot of industry Mm -hmm. don't kind of have that granular view. But I think for some of the bigger companies, we may start to see that creeping in and the move away from TTF to to other hubs and kind of much more global mm-hmm. prices. Right. Rachel, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Uh, Rachel Morrison joining us there. I don't know. I still see a lot of problems. Anyway, um, coming up, we'll talk about China, its reopening, and the big speed bumps there. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Quick check in here on U.S. markets. Um, getting hit a little harder than European equities here. The S&P is now around the lows of the session, down six-tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq off by 1.3 percent. But volume is pretty bad. We're about 13 percent below uh, the 10-day moving average in terms of volume for the S&P. And you know what? I predict it's going to get a lot worse throughout the rest of the week. Um, the tech names like Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, all those names getting hit pretty hard. Maybe the why has to do with the bond market. You get yields uh, very much moving higher here. The 10-year yield up 11 basis points, uh, sitting right at 359 higher yields, tech is a little bit weaker. That's the dynamic uh, that we're kind of seeing in the market. Um, In the commodity market, you're looking at crude, though, up a whopping 2%. You have to also, you have uh, copper up by 0.6%. And, you know, Guy, I don't want to draw too much of a line under it, but I feel like the commodity world is going to really be hinging in some ways on what happens in China. Um, Does China actually achieve some kind of real opening? Um, Does China, does the demand really come? Do people wind up traveling for the holidays? That definitely affects things like jet fuel. Um, Or is it going to be a lot of um, rolling shutdowns? Like, okay, this area can't go anywhere. Then this area can't go anywhere. This area reopens. And that's going to be a different kind of dynamic. Yeah. I mean, I don't know yet because they're not telling us 
They're not giving Anything. us any data. They're not really giving us um, much to, to work on here. All we can do is, I think, is assume that what we saw is probably what they're going to see, but maybe even in a more mm-hmm. difficult fashion because of the because of the lack of vaccination. So uh, I think it's a real challenge right now. There's been some great reporting over the last 24 hours uh, by, by Bloomberg reporters who have been going to places like crematorium to, to figure out what kind of numbers they're seeing. It's a grisly job, but it's it's at least giving us an accurate or more accurate reflection of the reality on the ground. Sam Fazelli, as ever, is the, uh, the man to ask about all of this uh, to give us an idea of the kind of trajectory that we are on, uh, joining us from Bloomberg Intelligence. Sam, I, I don't think anybody really expected that the Chinese were going to give us accurate numbers, but what is your assessment of what we are seeing? We've, we've seen a big 180. There is a reopening underway Clearly, we are seeing cases climbing very sharply in places like Beijing. What What is the kind of the lag effect from reopening to cases to hospitalization problems to significantly higher levels of mortality? Yeah, so, um, Guy, if you think back to how things kind of, what sequence and timing, etc., they had in Europe, US, you would s- expect hospitalization within a week to 10 days after infection, or at least testing positive. That's usually, I mean, it varies. It's changed now completely, but in the early days, that's probably what it was like. Yep. Going in with respiratory distress, etc. And then mortality tends to be offset by another, um, uh, say, couple of weeks. Because it takes time to go through the ICU to mm-hmm. get that massive... And now, there are drugs that China has, just like we have now. So dexamethasone has been worked out. The, the, the actemeras in this world are being used. Treatments like um, Eli Lilly's um, baricitinib, those are all things that can reduce uh, um, uh, mortality. Does China have access hospitality. to all that right now, Yeah, too? yeah, yeah. I'm, dexamethasone is fairly kind of dexamethasone is well generic. Drug, yeah. The, the um, Actemra is, I'm sure, available. The question is, can people afford it? Is it being used? Um, it's all those things are things that we just don't know, right? Um, and um, the other angle, of course, is that, that a lot of people are vaccinated in China. It's not that there's no vaccination. It's just that the booster level, and actually we've got some new data on that, has gone from 40.4% in the over 80s, with the ones that suffer most, uh, to 42.3% from the end of November to the 13th of December. So we calculate that as 250,000-ish doses per day, just mathematically calculating yep. it. And that's far short of the number needed to get, the gov- to, get to the 90% the government has um, as a target. So can we extrapolate, though, what the trough is going to be, Sam? Knowing what we've seen in other countries, knowing that there is even more up-to-date and better treatments... When are we going to hit the the? Well, I guess it's a nadir. When are we going to hit the top in cases, the tops in deaths, and then that comes down, and then we have a real China economy that we can look to. You know, so I'm going to give you an extremely in-depth epidemiological analysis. Okay, <laughs> you don't I know. Not, You're inside. I am not, no, 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 no. <laughs> what I'm going to say is, I'm going to go and put a, I'm going to go yeah. put the kettle on. Yeah, we'll make right. some tea. We'll come. And what I, you know, I gave an analogy earlier on to another another one of our colleagues. If you think about traffic jams, they have this strange accordion behavior. Yep. Suddenly, constant. Here we go. That's the one. Constantinaing. Wow. Um, I like accordions. <laughs> nice music. If you you, know, you think to yourself, well, why is that? Uh, well, because people's behavior 
suddenly when you have room in front of you, you go, okay, well, I can go now. You go fast yeah. and then you will end up at the same. If you think about what happens during a wave of infections, you're all hearing and seeing lots of people infected. You try and change your behavior. You don't go out as much. And as as that then leads to a reduction in infections, so the, 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 the wave has crested and it's on its descent, um, you start feeling good about yourself again. So you start going out again. Yep. And of course, the next wave starts. Now, I've put it extremely simplistically here. Any epidemiologist listening is probably laughing their head off. But I, that's as close as I can get to, to describing what is possibly going to happen in that human behavior is a humongous factor, huge factor in determining how these waves will shape up and how many there will be, etc. But the entire population is going to have to be exposed to the virus. There's no way out of that, mm. just yep. like we have. How long does that take? So depending on how people change their behavior, I mean, if they do okay. nothing, if they don't do any of the lockdowns, you said. See, what I've heard, so we were talking to, to Alan Warner out of Shanghai a little bit earlier. He said he went to the, to the mall this evening. Nobody was there. Right. So as, but he went. Yeah, he right. went to report on it. He right. went to go and have a look. But you did see also another report that says there's a bit more li- a sign of life in Beijing. At this well, he idea. was in Shanghai, so maybe there's yeah. just a different... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's possible. So, but... Over time, a whole bunch of people will have had their infections. They get over it and they get fed up being stuck at home, so they go out. Right. But we just don't know when that turning point is going to be. Well, I would say if we have a massive wave going on, these waves tend to really get going within four or five weeks. So I wouldn't be surprised if come early January we we, we have crested Crested the wave. And And then, of course, what happens then, right? How many people got infected? then the next, uh, the next um, wave will have to start going. So how long will it take if they leave it completely like this? Don't do any of the lockdowns. Do nothing yep. and just leave it up to people. Maybe in three months or four months, it would have burnt through everybody. But the hospital system's oh. not capable of taking that. No, at, a, at an incredibly high cost, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But maybe they've decided that President Xi has decided that it doesn't matter. Let's just get it over and done with. I well, can't read his mind. No, no, no. But considering where they've come from, I, that would be a that's a huge, huge change. Yeah, correct. You're not on the but something side. happened between yeah. then and now, and that is that they had their election and everything's kind of. The, 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 I'm not suggesting yeah, that no, that no, is no, why this is happening yeah. now, but right that that has happened since. But but there has been things. Yeah. Um. Qu- quickly, Sam. Um. What kind of variant are are we all dealing with right now? Like, what is it? Is it Omicron seventy five? No, it's a soup. It's a soup. Is that, a, is, that is that Omicron? So BA soup. Oh, that it actually is called BA soup? No, no, of oh. course not. There's, but there's, there's one analysis that was done on, on one. Uh, one uh, the best way to do it is um, wastewater, sewage. Yep. Uh, six different variants in oh, that one area. Okay. So. And, and there's loads of other stuff floating around. Awesome. My kids have been sick all weekend. Like Temperatures are 40. There, there's clearly flu in the system. There's clearly all kinds Definitely of Definitely just stay away from Guy Sam. Just go run away. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, I, I, so far so good. I, I, feel, I, I, think I, I think I had it a week or so ago. 10 yeah. days ago. You anyway. can't see him on radio. I can vouch for his looking I, I great. I look okay. I look okay. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> this is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB yep. Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Um, so with just a few days left until Congress goes home for the holidays and then a new Congress comes in in January, um, we still have a U.S. House panel and the January 6th hearings. And in just about 20 minutes' time, 
They're going to issue its final report and on whether to refer anyone for prosecution or other sanctions concerning the January 6th insurrection. And of course, the person front and center of this would be President Trump. Will he be referred to on criminal charges to the DOJ? Let's get some insight here with Emory Hordern joining us uh, from Washington. Let's just say that Donald Trump is referred on criminal charges to the DOJ. What does that mean in practicality? Well, so first thing, if there is this unprecedented referral, as you're talking about, and one of those charges is insurrections, he could potentially just not be able to even hold office again under the language of the 14th Amendment. So that's the first thing um, to come away with this. The next is, like you say, this all goes to the DOJ, meaning the weight is not there unless the Department of Justice responds. And we just at this time don't know how they would respond to any of these criminal referrals. What we do know in the past is that they've been a little bit cautious. Uh, They charged Steve Bannon for when he didn't respond to committee subpoenas. That led to a trial, um, and he was found guilty of contempt of Congress and sentenced to four months behind bars. We also had Peter Navarro. Um, He goes on trial in January on similar charges. So, But at this moment, we just don't know how they would carry that out. But it still would be historic if there is this referral, this criminal charge referral. We've never seen that for a former president. Insurrection. I, it sounds pretty serious just from the get-go. Amory, how political is this? Well, the Republicans definitely say it is political. And they say this report wasn't fair. And they think that the subcommittee, even though it's bipartisan, they don't think it is tipped in the right direction. But the other side of that is the fact that there are many Republicans who also want a new bearer for their party. They want a new leader. Trump already in polls is showing that he would not beat Governor Ron DeSantis if Ron DeSantis was to make a play for the White House, um, and also that he wouldn't beat the current sitting president, as he didn't do in the prior election, uh, President Biden. So this is just another, let's say, straw on the camel's back, maybe for some Republicans, of a slew of issues the former president is dealing with. So after today. This panel, though, goes away, right? Yes. So what happens then with the next Congress? Like, can they say, forget it, DOJ, just kidding, I'm taking it back? Or is it just out there and then it's on Merrick Garland now? Yeah, it really is a referral. So it just, the baton passes on to what the Department of Justice wants to do, pick up or not pick up. I imagine they will be very cautious. They have not wanted to seem that any of this is political and they are really doing their due diligence. But today is the last day, and not just we're just going to get these referrals, but we're going to get a really huge report. Um, And potentially it could be other individuals, close confidants and associates of the former president as well that are going to be named. Does it matter that, uh, to your point about the Republicans are kind of looking at Donald Trump now with new eyes post the midterms, if he is, if, if the words insurrection and Donald Trump are now much more formally tied together. Does that change people's perception of him? Even if he's not found guilty, even if there is, this doesn't go any further. He has now been tied together with that word. How do Americans feel about that? Well, if there is this referral, his election bid will be really difficult. So it's going to be difficult for that party to embrace him, right? The Republicans to continue to the ones that want to embrace him to do so, because when you look at the 14th Amendment, it says anyone who has t- 
taken an oath to support the Constitution, which if you are a member of Congress, you have to do. If you're president, you have to do. You're then barred from federal office if you engage in insurrection. The other big thing is that, you know, independents are really the ones that decide elections. You know, time and time again, you'll see a lot of elections where presidential elections still must split down the middle. They need those independents, mm-hmm. and this could potentially taint those views. Yeah, but then here's base. I mean, how much did he make off of selling NFTs? I'm just saying, like, there is a huge base. It gets makes complicates the issue very much. Amory, thanks a lot. Really appreciate looking forward to the coverage. Amory Hordern joining us there. Coming up, we're going to talk Twitter and the chief twit. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. So let's talk about what's happening with Twitter. Elon Musk, chief twit, putting a poll out over the weekend, basically asking whether or not he should continue to lead this business. Um, Last time I saw, I think it was something like 17 million people responded to that. uh, And the majority of people came out and said, that they felt that he should step aside, step into a different role, do something else. Basically, we need somebody else to be able to run this business. Now, this comes after we all saw those pictures over the weekend of Elon Musk at the World Cup watching Argentina beat France. Sorry, I just have to say that again. Um, and and he, he clearly was there with a series of leaders from the Gulf and Jared Kushner. All of this is incredible uh, in terms of what it tells us about kind of where this process is and where it kind of is going. He has indicated that at some point he wants to look for an exit of this business. It has been a chaotic start to his tenure and ownership of Twitter. Um, let's bring in um, Ed Ludlow, who is in London right now for the holidays, uh, normally to be found in San Francisco. Um, Ed, we're trying to piece, you're trying to piece together what is happening here. We we saw this um, we saw this poll out over the weekend. Now now Musk normally puts out a poll when he already knows the answer. He's looking for, for yeah. affirmation basically of what he already thinks. So what can we kind of deduce about how this process is unfolding? So the timing's curious insofar as there have been media reports that Musk is out there trying to get additional equity financing for the deal. You know, a big portion of the deal was still debt, as Bloomberg's reported. You know. Sources say that most bankers are trying to remove some of the unsecured debt in favor of margin loans. Because it's expensive. Because it's expensive, but those margin loans are collateralized or secured against Tesla stock, which as well is under pressure. Yep. You know, we're now down again. There was a big sharp market reaction in pre US trading uh, to the poll and the outcome of it. The idea being that, oh, if he does follow through with the poll and honors the result, He'll be more focused on Tesla, which is upside for Tesla stock. We're actually now negative again. You know, Oppenheimer, for example, downgraded the stock, just saying we can no longer separate the two. You know, their fates yep. are are linked. Um, and so any analysis of Tesla stock is now tied to analysis of Twitter as well. But- it's very confusing. Sorry, Alex. Yeah, but it, that does not answer Guy's question on timing. That's just what's happened. Yep. But, but I guess my question is, are we giving Musk too much credit here? Like, is this something that was well thought through? Well, or is this like he just wants to get out or he's just trying to make hay on Twitter? I, Musk did say previously that he would only ever lead Twitter temporarily until the right person was to be found. Um, the problem is that after Musk tweeted the poll, he also tweeted that there is no one out there that wants the job and is capable of keeping Twitter alive, were his words. And now what we're are trying... Those, are those two things different? Nobody that, There are people that don't want the job that could keep Twitter alive. Well, it's curiously worded, isn't yeah. it? 
in other words, there are people that want the job, but Musk probably doesn't think much of them and doesn't think that they can yep. save Twitter. I mean, what we know it largely is based on Musk's previous tweets. So um, former T-Mobile CEO John Legere tweeted a few weeks ago, you guys probably remember, kind of putting his hand up saying, hey, I could be CEO. And Musk just replied saying no. <laughs> and that was it. But he later followed up and said that, that what he's looking for is a technologist, someone that gets the underlying technology behind Twitter, which is a software issue. Mm-hmm. And then as they try to make things better, a server issue to, to kind of power and house that. Um, it's, it's not immediately obvious, obvious who that person is, Alex. Well, yeah, but didn't they have that person? Well, Parag Agrawal, the former uh, Twitter CEO, was a technologist. Yes, he was a surprise choice as Twitter CEO. He took over from Jack Dorsey in March of last year at a time where actually what the company and insiders told us was they wanted a, a, a doer, an operator. Now, ironically, we want the opposite. But Parag Agrawal did not survive the first 24 hours of, of Elon Musk's ownership of Twitter. Is he going to make the decision or the Saudis and the Qataris going to make this the decision? This is the thing. Like, I, I'm fascinated by the cap table of the private Twitter. So, so Musk is the single largest individual shareholder. We know that. But the Saudis, are, or, or at least Prince uh, bin Awalid, is the, is the second largest individual. Then there are other big VC names in there. There are all of the equity investors, investors that chose to roll over their shares into the private entity. And as you alluded to in the intro to the segment, we reported that in the shareholder decks before the transaction closed, Musk promised that the the holding company would go public anyway in three to five years' time. And that's what I'm saying, that all of the noise around this, if you're an investor, you must be thinking, I'm really worried I'm not (laughs) going to get my money back here. (laughs) And if I'm an advertiser, I'm like, why would I advertise right now on it? So so this is my question. Sure. How useful is Twitter going to be going forward with this drama in in front and center. And even if Musk resigns, he still owns the company, right? So like, it's, it's not yes. like he goes away altogether. Alex, Alex wants to know, should she be using Twitter? It's I, interesting. But There's I, asked, three... I got asked this question, like how reliable is Twitter now? Like how do you use it? And I was like, I genuinely have no idea. There's, there's three baskets to that answer. The first is the content moderation side, right? And I think what a lot of the concern about this related to why should elon musk be making content moderation or policy decisions for twitter even though he owns it right um the second is the advertisers you know what makes it a good platform for ads in fact we have to go back to all the things musk said previously he wants to move away from advertising and boost the subscription uh part which he says in turn to answer your question would improve the quality of content on the platform Mm. um i can't remember what the third basket was because it's been a long day already uh but all i would say is that you know the technology, sorry, it's technology. You know, Musk is clearly not actually that worried about the ad side. And he's saying, look, I actually think we need to get people in here who are talented engineers, which is interesting, given that he fired 3,500 of them just a few weeks ago. Who do you listen to to give you a good steer on what is happening here other than uh, Elon Musk? Aside from Guy. No, 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 no. No, no, it's a good point. I mean... Like, who is, who is, who's, got a, who's got a good handle on what is happening here? Everyone is is an outsider looking in now. Yeah. You know, you know, we we did some great reporting based on sources at the company over the last year, particularly in the last five months. You know, many of of the Twitter insiders that I've known, we've known for a long time and spoken to, no one's left there anymore. Exactly. So they're just giving an opinion. I think the one thing I would say is that Musk has not a very good track record on timeline. He does ultimately achieve the things that he says he will, but we're all starting from a position where we take what he says at face value. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
That's um, what I'm wondering. I'm just wondering uh, how, how we get a handle on what is what is really happening. Great reporting, Ed, as yeah. ever. Fanta- fantastic. Thank you so much. That wraps things up. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>